So we had mentioned earlier that uh, we are in a series now called Unsung Hero, where we're examining who exactly the Holy Spirit is, his role, his function. Uh, the reason I call it Unsung Hero is because oftentimes we talk about God the Father, we talk about Jesus Christ, and rightfully so, but we forget the equal third part of the Trinity, which is the Holy Spirit. And so if you missed last week's, we, we covered the who, what, when, where, and why of the Holy Spirit. I encourage you to check that out on our YouTube page if you get a chance to really get a full scope understanding on who the Holy Spirit is. And today I want to kind of step into uh, one of the roles or one of the uh, purposes behind the Holy Spirit. And it's an interesting one because I think when we hear this word, it kind of triggers some negative thoughts. And the word is Conviction. I think for a lot of us, especially in Chicago, ain't nobody trying to get convicted, right? Like, we don't like conviction. It's like, no, no, not me, bro. I, was, I wasn't even there. Like, I don't even know that person. We don't like conviction. That word conviction, it triggers some thoughts. But the reality is conviction, another term for another way to describe it as it's used in the Bible is to convince, right? And this is essentially what you're doing. When you convict even a criminal, you are convincing a judge or a jury that they are guilty. When you have conviction over something like, hey, I'm going to do this. I have serious conviction and I'm going to follow through. That means you are convinced. And so you're going to do it. That's essentially what conviction means. And what's important to understand is when you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, it only comes from the Holy Spirit. You can't manipulate that. You and yourself cannot convince people of spiritual things. Only the Spirit of God can. And so I was thinking about that even just within the context of this message. And uh, I was thinking about our new youth pastors, Pastor Izzy and Ariel. He's leaving now. Thanks. I just, I just mentioned your name and he walked away. <laughs> and uh, I was thinking like uh, just in regard to the conversation we were having months ago when this whole opportunity came about uh, where, you know, there was going to be possibly a chance for me to move into this role and then I'd have to find my replacement. And I remember in talking to this is a conversation we had over years ago. We never knew when and where it might come up. But as I called them, I was trying to be very diligent about not overly persuading them, if I could say that. I didn't want to be manipulative. I didn't want to twist their arms. I didn't want to, you know, hey, if you do this, we'll do this. I didn't want to sweeten the pot in any way, shape, or form because I really needed them to come if they felt convicted to be here. And that's really what it was. And so there was a number of times where we'd get on the phone and I'd be hanging up. I'm like, are you going to give me that yes yet? Like, I know we're close to you. We're like 97% yes. Where's that 3%? And so we'd go back and forth. But I tried very hard. I hope I, I accomplished this of never trying to force the matter because I needed him to understand. And I said this to him and his wife. I said, listen, if I'm the one that makes you give, if I convince you myself, then when things get difficult, you're going to blame me. When, when things don't go well, when you show up to Chicago and you don't close on your house yet and you have to live in a basement that one of our deacons, thank God, has provided, but it's not necessarily your home and all your stuff is in storage and things are all out of whack. They didn't blame me because they knew God called them. So they were convinced by God. They had the conviction of the Holy Spirit of saying, we know we need to be here and God will take care of the rest, which by the way, they closed on Friday on their house. So they are officially Chicago residents. And you know what I love about them? They were very adamant about being in Chicago proper because y'all know how we feel about people who claim Chicago but aren't actually in Chicago. And so they are in Chicago proper just six minutes away. I'd give you their address, but I don't think they'd want that. Um, but my point is, it was all because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's what's going to draw you. That's what's going to lead you. And that's what we need. 
We need the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We don't need the persuasion of men. We don't need the eloquence of our neighbor. We don't need everybody else telling us what to do. We need to be in tune with the Holy Spirit. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to look at John chapter 16. Here Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he's getting them ready. He's getting them prepped up. He knows his hour is coming and he wants them to understand the role of the Holy Spirit and what he's going to do. And so he says this in verse 7. It says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, or in other words, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Okay, let me read that again. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no more or no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. What's important to understand in all of this is that true spiritual conviction can only come from the Holy Spirit. We need to especially remember that with the first point, the conviction concerning sin. Now, this is something that I think a lot of Christians with good intentions but bad execution have hurt people with. You cannot convince someone of their sin. You and yourself cannot have someone feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit's sin outside of the Holy Spirit. So you can tell them all you want. You can say what you're doing is a sin. You can quote scripture at them, which by the way, uh, just again, just to be an unbeliever, when you say, but the Bible says, means nothing to them because they don't believe in the Bible. And so when you, when you say that, especially online, well, the Bible says all you're doing is adding fuel to their own fire of saying, I don't even believe in your book. Stop quoting your book to me. Because scripture really is only scripture to the believer. To anybody else, it's just an ancient book. And so we understand the power of that. That's why the Bible says, don't cast your pearls to swine. Don't throw these amazing, powerful thoughts and, and just the precepts of God to someone who doesn't understand it. Now, does that mean we don't preach the Bible? Absolutely not. We do preach the Bible. My point is, with simple eloquence and education, you're not going to convince anybody. You are not going to make someone a Christian simply because you force them to go to church every week. And I'm not, again... I feel like I'm talking both ends. Yes, make your kids come to church. They don't get options, okay? Make them come to church. But you do that in the hopes that while they are here, they will have an encounter with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will convict them of their sin, okay? So it's not, oh, you need to come to church because Pastor Izzy's gonna teach you about God and you're gonna learn. Yeah, they may learn all that stuff, but if they don't get the conviction of the Holy Spirit, they will never repent of their sin because it's only a spiritual thing. Okay, you can't make someone experience conviction of sin. You can preach, you can read scriptures to them, you can send them links, but only the Holy Spirit can bring spiritual conviction. In Acts, Jesus told the disciples to wait on the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now think about this. There has never been, nor will there ever be, a better trained group of individuals to do ministry. There are no theologians, I don't care how many doctorates you have, I don't care how many schools you go to, I don't care if you went to Yale or Harvard, it does not matter. There is nobody who was better trained than those 12 men who walked with Jesus every single day, lived with him for three years, experienced the power of the Holy Spirit through him. No one is better equipped to do the work of God. And yet Jesus says, before you try to do it, wait on the Holy Spirit. Hey, before you go and preach the gospel to all nations in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, wait on the Holy Spirit. If those men had to wait on the Holy Spirit, who are you and I to think we don't? 
Who, who are you and I to think we can accomplish the will of God without the spirit of God? And so Jesus tells them, wait on the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to notice how the hearers respond, okay? Acts chapter two, verse 37 through 41. Uh, right after this, the Holy Spirit has fallen upon the disciples. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in unknown languages. They spill out into the streets. They start preaching the gospel. We'll talk more about this in a few weeks. Uh, and suddenly all these people are starting to hear the gospel in their own native tongue. And then in verse 37 of chapter two, it says, Peter's words pierced their hearts and they said to him and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sin and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise it is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Meaning that same promise that Peter was speaking to those men in that time is evident and applicable to you and I today. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believe what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. Could you imagine if in one day our church grew by 3,000? I mean, that sounds great. I wouldn't know what to do. I'm like, yo, I've only been on this 22 days or something. Like... Thank you, God, but I don't know what to do with all this. Because again, you got to understand, it's like the equivalent of saying, imagine the Lord blessed you with 15 new babies. You're like, uh, I love babies, but I don't know what to do with all that. But see, here's the thing. It was the Holy Spirit that was doing it. That's what made it so powerful. Peter preached. He explained what was going on. But did you notice what the believers said? Brothers, what should we do? There was conviction of their sin. They recognized that they had sinned against God and they recognized that they were impure and they needed a savior. When you are in the presence of the Holy Spirit, conviction of sin will come. It's no different than when Elijah, uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah stood before the throne of grace and he's, he's there in the kingdom and standing before God and all his archangels and the seraphims and it's this amazing moment. And the second he's in the presence of God, he's not laughing with joy. He's not crying out of happiness going, oh my God, this is so great. I'm in the presence of God. He is struck down with fear, falls face down to the ground and says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among an unclean people. In the moment he got in the presence of God, there was instant recognition and conviction of his sin. And he knew that that meant death. So it terrified him. Thank God that the seraphim came and anointed his lips and purified him and so he could stand before God. And that kind of is a precursor to what Jesus Christ has done for you and I. For all of us who have put our faith in Christ, we have been cleansed of our sins and now we don't fear death anymore because we have life in Jesus. Okay, but listen, you can only do that if you're truly repentant of your sin. And you can only be repentant of your sin if the Holy Spirit convicts you. Because let's be honest, a lot of us growing up, we all knew what we were doing was wrong. We knew. Mama told you, your uncle told you, my grandma told you, everybody told you what you were doing was wrong. Even if you're like, well, it's not like I was doing a lot of stuff. Well, what you were doing wasn't good. And yet, it wasn't until the Holy Spirit had an encounter and the Holy Spirit showed you where you're living isn't good, what you're doing isn't right, that instantly we felt that conviction of saying, I need God. Now listen, there's two reactions that you have, and I'm gonna cover this with each one. 
There's the reaction of the unbeliever and there's the reaction of the believer. To the unbeliever, the conviction of sin only makes things worse. And by unbeliever, I mean someone who has experienced this and still chooses not to follow God. Because to the unbeliever, when they are confronted with their sin, when conviction of sin comes from the Holy Spirit, a lot of times they interpret that as condemnation. Meaning I am damned to hell, and if you're gonna damn me to hell, then I don't want you. If you don't love me, if you don't care for me, God, then I don't need you, and I don't want you. If you're asking me to give up everything, then I don't want you. I don't like this feeling. I don't like what you're making me feel, and so I'd rather not be with you at all, and so they brush God away. There's anger, there's shame, there's guilt. They don't know how to deal with it, and so they run away from God. The believer, however, experiences conviction which is similar to condemnation in a lot of people's views and how they phrase it. But the difference is when you're condemned, you want to run away from God. When you're convicted, you want to run to God. You understand that you're unclean and that you need a savior. So you run to the father and you say, father, make me clean again. Make me pure in your eyes. The believer has repentance because they recognize I love you, but I don't deserve you. And so I need you to purify me so that I can be with you the way you want to be with me. Two different reactions to the same presence. And you don't get to dictate that. And so a lot of times I know because we care, because we love, we want to try to, to strong arm people. We want to try to put it in their face and shove it down their throat. And honestly, most of the time, you're only making things worse. If you really, really want them to experience the conviction of sin, spend more time praying for them than you do talking to them. Because they can ignore your words, but they are helpless against your prayers. And so you pray to the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, bring conviction, bring the conviction that only you can bring. Help them to understand that they don't need to keep going down the road they're going. Help them understand that there is so much more than what they have. Because the Holy Spirit knows how to speak to a spirit more than you do. The Holy Spirit knows how to hit the innermost being. Because again, anytime, like even in the church service, it's never been the pastor. It's never been the worship. It's the Holy Spirit. That's what you're experiencing. That's why, here's my favorite thing, and I got this a lot, especially when I do camps and stuff. You ever had that moment where you're almost mad at the pastor because you think somebody told him your business? You know what I mean? You guys think we're just sitting there like, oh yeah, I'm like, this sermon is just for this. I'm gonna get him today. No offense, you're not that special. We're not just like writing one sermon just for you. No, no, no. That's not the preacher. That's the Holy Spirit. Why do you think it's a room full of people and you are hearing exactly what you need to hear because it's the Holy Spirit speaking directly to your spirit? That is the conviction of sin. So where you might be convicted of one thing, another person in the other room might be convicted of another thing because the Spirit speaks directly. I'm saying the same words, but it's interpreted by the Spirit of God differently to your spirit. That's the power. And that's why I can never get fluffed up. I can never get excited. I can never be like, oh man, look what I did. I ain't do nothing. There was one occasion, I've told this story a number of times early on in, in youth ministry where uh, I didn't prepare like I should have. I kind of got used to it and I got into a little bit of a groove and kind of like Pastor Jason was saying, I got into just my ability and I didn't pray, I didn't prep, I didn't lean on the Holy Spirit. I just went out there and I preached a sermon. And the whole time I'm embarrassed. I am so, I just want to get off the platform. I just felt like I was insulting God. I was so upset. And it was probably the best altar call I had ever had up until that point. If you measure altar calls by tears and boogers, it was up there. And I walked off the platform. I went through that back area. I fell to my knees and I began to weep. And I felt the Holy Spirit tell me, 
I will do this with or without you. I don't need you. And I said, yes, Lord. Because anything that happens good in this service is a result of the Holy Spirit. Not only does the Holy Spirit convict us concerning sin, but conviction concerning righteousness. The Holy Spirit is the constant reminder of the perfection that we find in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ in the flesh was a model of righteousness, showed you what righteousness looks like. In John 16, 10, Jesus says that I go to the Father so you will no longer see me. In other words, the example of righteousness will no longer be walking among you. But yet we don't lose that example because the Holy Spirit keeps that standard in front of us. Jesus Christ is the ultimate standard of righteousness, of what it looks like to be in right standing with God, of what perfection looks like. By comparison, you and I fall painfully short. It's like some of you think you're really good at basketball, okay? Some of you had hoop dreams growing up. And you're like, oh man, like when I was a freshman, bro, I was shooting threes and da da da. I was putting up numbers, blah, 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 blah. I had stats. It's like, cool, bro, you're 47 now. <laughs> no, but bro, I can still hoop, man. Like I can still get out there, da da da. And a lot of us grow up, we, we think we're good. And man, sometimes you see our teenagers, man, they got hoop dreams. Bro, I could do this, I could do that. I was like, bro, I'm like 300 pounds and 37 years old. Of course you can beat me. Like, it's not impressive, dude. <laughs> We think we can hoop, but compared to the last guy on the worst team in the NBA, you're garbage. You ever seen that? Like, I remember Brian Scalabrini. Anyone remember Brian Scalabrini, the white hope? Like, he was the goofiest looking basketball player. And because he didn't look like what people thought a basketball player would look like, regular people constantly challenged him. And he would embarrass the daylights out of them because he's still an NBA caliber player. My point is, you might think you're a good person, but that's only compared to other bad people. You might think you live a holy life, but you're only comparing it to your other knucklehead neighbors, okay? So, so for me growing up, I used to tell my like, hey, I'm perfect. Y'all see those kids out there? You should be thanking God for me, okay? And I get that. When we compare ourselves to each other, maybe you are good, but when you compare yourself to Christ, not even close, as a matter of fact, you don't recognize how really wicked you are until you see how good God is. That's what the Holy Spirit does. When you start getting full of yourself, when you start thinking you can handle this, the Holy Spirit's like, uh -huh, Jesus, you don't look like him. <laughs> You're like, no, no, but you know, like, man, I was out there, I was doing ministry. Uh -huh, Jesus, <laughs> you don't look like him. My point is you think you're good until you see what good looks like. Titus chapter three, verse four through seven. But when God, our savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out his spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. It's all by the work of God. It's by his grace that we are made right with God. Not through our efforts, not through our own goodness, not through the things we accomplish, not because you've been in church your whole life or you've always gone to Belmont. God is not impressed that you go to Belmont. God is not impressed that you've gone to church your whole life. Do you look like Jesus? Does he cover you? Do you have that conviction of righteousness, of understanding and humility and in love? God, I'm not like you, but I thank you that you cover me. I thank you that what I lack in righteousness, you cover. 
so that I can be one with you, so that I can be whole. So what does this mean? To the unbeliever, it means that efforts alone are meaningless and it's frustrating because the unbeliever thinks that as long as they are nice to people and give to charity and do good things, that they deserve heaven. But the believer, it's relief. It takes the pressure off of trying to be perfect because we serve a perfect God. And we understand that, yes, I have shortcomings, but by the grace of God, I can continue to move forward. Romans chapter three, verse 22 through 24 says, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. And so who are we to boast about that? Who are we to brag that, oh, my kid is this, or I did this, or my husband's that, or my wife? No, we all fall short of the glory of God. Beginning with your pastor and everyone else in this room. But it is by the grace of God that we can fellowship, that we can grow. And so whenever you start to get a little full of yourself, whenever you start to think you can handle things on your own, whenever you start to think, well, you know, I don't need to go to church every week. I'm pretty good. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. I'm still sending my tithe. I'm paying my Jesus bill. That's not what that is, by the way. The Holy Spirit will come and say, that's not living righteously. Because you still have to try. <laughs> Even though we fall short, by the grace of God, we can continue to live a righteous life. So the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit convicts us of righteousness. And there's the conviction concerning judgment. The Holy Spirit reminds us that judgment has already been passed on Satan at the cross. Jesus defeated Satan when he resurrected three days later. He conquered sin and death at that point. As a result, we have an opportunity to escape that judgment by putting our faith in Jesus. That's the, the good news. That's the, the conviction concerning judgment. But you have to understand that there's a time limit to that. Acts chapter 17, verse 30 through 31. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now... He commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he approved to everyone who is this by raising him. I'm sorry, he had proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead, meaning Jesus. What is it saying? It's saying, listen, there was a time where God gave humanity a pass because Jesus had not yet come. Now we have no excuse because of Christ. So we can't sit here and be like, oh, I didn't know any better. No, no. Romans tells us that the very nature proclaims his righteousness. That, that we are inherently understanding that there is something greater than ourselves. Everyone is born with a God-shaped hole, understanding there is a need for something there. So there really isn't an excuse. But taken even further, especially in the country we live in, we've all heard of Jesus at some point or another. You've seen a billboard, you watch a program on TV, you have a relative. Everybody in this room has at least heard the name of Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit reminds us of that judgment. And here's the beauty of it. For the believer, again, it's relief because that judgment has passed over us. Because Christ paid for that judgment. Because Christ has already paid that penalty so you and I don't have to. You and I now can live freely because of what Jesus is. There will be a day when Jesus will return to judge the world. 
And it doesn't matter if it's the day that Jesus comes to see you or the day that you go to see Jesus. Because I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, they've been saying the end times are coming and they've always said that and it hasn't come yet. And my reply usually is, listen, whether Jesus returns tomorrow or you get hit by a bus and see him tomorrow, at some point, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ that each man may receive what's due to him according to what he has done while in the body, whether it be good or bad, 1 Corinthians 5.10. We're all gonna stand there. That's why I love the scripture tells us that everyone at some point will become a believer. They won't have a relationship with God, but you'll believe because when you stand before God, oh snap, it's real. But is it too late? Everyone will believe, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord but I wanna make sure I do this now, not when it's too late. The conviction of judgment reminds us that we don't have forever, that we're carnal beings, that we're like blades of grass here today and gone tomorrow. We don't have time. I've tried to say that a lot over the years in, in youth ministry because you know, as a young person, you feel like you got all the time in the world. And we say things like, when I grow up, I'll, do it. I'll get serious with God when I grow up. Who said you grow up? Nobody has been promised tomorrow. And that's why God sent the Holy Spirit to bring that conviction of judgment, to help us to understand, hey, God is coming back. Jesus is returning. And so to the believer, they have a choice to accept that and repent of their sin or to not. Which by the way, even an indecision is a decision in this matter. Because the decision is whether you believe Christ or not. And if you say, well, I'm not gonna make a decision, that's your decision. It's not. John chapter three, verse 36. And anyone who believes in God's son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. So what you have to understand is the conviction of judgment for the unbeliever is reminding you, hey, the penalty for your sins haven't been paid yet. Or at least they have, but you haven't accepted them. You need to accept Jesus or you're gonna pay for it yourself. All right? It's like anything else. It's like if you had a bill and they sent you a credit, but you had to send it back to, to confirm it, you can't then later on be angry that they're still holding it against you. Like, no, no, we told you what you need to do and you refused to do it, so now you owe us. And in the same way, everyone, here's the thing we have to understand. Sin must be paid for. The Bible says the wages of sin is death and God is a righteous God and he is a just God. So he's not gonna sidestep the penalty. That's why he sent Jesus to pay the penalty. So the penalty's paid. You just gotta be willing to accept that payment on your behalf. And if you're unwilling to accept that payment on your behalf, then what you're saying is I'll pay the price myself. To the believer, what this reminds us is that the world is filled with people who are condemned to hell. And that should bother you. It should bother you. That's what the conviction of judgment should do to you is the Holy Spirit should remind you that person's gonna be judged. That person's gonna be judged. That, per that relative of yours that you say you love, they're being judged. And unless you proclaim my gospel and pray that the Holy Spirit will bring that conviction of sin, they will die and go to hell. Now, nobody likes to hear that. And very often in church nowadays, we don't preach that as much because it doesn't make you feel good. But if pleasing man were my goal, then I couldn't please God, as Paul says, right? This is the reality. 
And for a believer, a lover of God, someone who has a relationship with Jesus, it breaks your heart. It makes you want to do something. And again, understand, the pressure's not on you to get them saved because only God can do that. The pressure's not on you to make them feel convicted about their sin, right? Because only the Holy Spirit can do that. The pressure is on you to be obedient to whatever it is that the Holy Spirit tells you to do. So the Holy Spirit might send you to, to share a word. It might be a small thing. It might be in the middle of the grocery store and the Holy Spirit guides you to somebody and just says, hey, ask them how much the lettuce is. It's like, well, that doesn't sound very spiritual. And you never know how that one question about the lettuce might turn into a conversation about why you live here and, and the relationship you have. I was talking about that with Pastor Izzy and they're obviously new to the neighborhood. So everywhere they've gone, people ask them, well, why'd you come to Chicago? They literally opened the door themselves to the gospel. But he's got to walk through it. He's got to be able to say, well, I'm here because God has called us to this church and we're pastors in this area. Do you know about Jesus? I'd love to tell you about him. Because the conviction of judgment Yes, it may not be over you anymore, but it's still over others. Do you care enough about others to share that? Worship team, if you can help me out. There was a very famous evangelist in the early 20th century by the name of Charles Finney. Charles Finney was a bad dude, in a good way, you know, filled with the Holy Spirit. And I love when you read counts of people who are genuinely filled with the Holy Spirit, there is power in that that is literally supernatural. The Bible tells us about, you know, Peter when he would walk and, and how uh, his shadow would heal people and how people would steal Paul's handkerchief and lay it on people that were sick and they would be healed because of the power of the Holy Spirit. There was such a powerful anointing of God's spirit over them that it just poured out of them and onto people. And Charles Finney was a guy like that. Charles Finney would go and preach revivals all over the country. There's some estimates that over 100,000 to upwards of 500,000 people came to know Jesus Christ through his ministry. Finney, though, says himself that the most amazing display of God's power in his life came one day when he was visiting a cotton factory in the New York Mills, a small town near Utica in New York. Revival was already breaking out all over that town and it started to cause opposition. People were starting to get mad. People were starting to mock. People were starting to protest. People were starting to cause a, a ruckus. It reminds me one time when I took a group of youth leaders to the UK and we got into some schools and the Holy Spirit began to move. And we, the youth group, when we got to it on Sunday, had 12 kids and by next week it was 112 kids. Because 100 people gave their life to the Lord that week. And I thought we were killing it. I was super excited. And then I started getting hate mail from people, messages from people cursing me out. One dude yelled at me for three hours online before he gave to life, his life to Christ over messenger. You're gonna talk to me that long, we're gonna talk about Jesus at some point. This is what was happening to Charles Finney. He was starting to get that, which by the way, that's a good sign. When you're doing God's work, you better expect opposition. If there is no opposition, I wonder how much of God's work you're doing. So Charles Finney, he goes to this cotton mill, and in that cotton mill were some of those opponents, specifically a young lady. She's staring at him, making fun of him, giggling with her girlfriend. Some reports say she made some crude remarks. And Charles Finney, just like a G, doesn't say a word. He just stares at her. 
prayerfully. Doesn't break eye contact, just stares. And you can almost imagine that scene where she's giggling and then she notices staring. She says, <laughs> Why is he staring at me? And he just keeps staring all the while praying. And as he's staring, suddenly her thread breaks on the machine she's working and she can't get her thread fixed and he's still staring and she still knows it and she's getting frustrated and she's getting upset and suddenly the conviction of sin comes in and she begins to weep at her workstation and then her co-workers begin to weep and then their co-workers begin to weep and then a hundred employees are weeping and he hasn't said a word yet because it's not about what Charles Finney says. It's about the Holy Spirit. So Finney started to look at her and, and he started moving and everything's starting to break out. The factory owner seeing this is deeply moved himself and he says this, stop the mill and let the people attend to religion for it is far more important that our souls be saved than the factory run. All the workers attended and assembled in a very large room. And Finney said this, a more powerful meeting I scarcely ever attended. Within a few days, nearly every employee was saved. Some accounts say they were all saved. Several authors say there was 3,000 employees in that factory. And he didn't say a word. Not until they gathered, obviously. Why? Because it's not about the preacher. It's not about the person. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what will bring conviction. That's what convinces an unbeliever to become a believer. So I'm gonna ask you to stand. And in a moment, we're gonna pray. But church, can we invite the Holy Spirit in this room once again? I know he's been here. I understand it. I felt him. But can we just begin to lift our hands as, as the worship team begins to lead us in? Come on, can we invite the Holy Spirit in? Can we ask the Holy Spirit to move, to bring conviction?